Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at the first five chapters in the book of Revelation. Just something to supplement your, your own study and come follow me. And the book of Revelation is, as we all know, it's one that is different. It's hard to understand. It has kind of strange and, and wild symbols, we might say. And because of that, we're not quite sure what to do with it or how to understand it. It's like it's written in code and we need to decode it. And the fact is, it is written in code. In fact, one of my Book of Revelation professors, Dr. Richard Draper, said, how do you preserve something where plain and precious things might be removed? He said, you write it in code. And that code is called apocalyptic. So the book of Daniel is written in apocalyptic. I think probably 1 Nephi chapter 14 is kind of written in this apocalyptic style. It's a different way of writing, a different genre. And many of you might remember Gerald Lund, who wrote the Work in the Glory series. He's also, you know, in the church educational system for years and a scholar. This is what he said. I'm looking now in the religion or the New Testament student manual that is on your library if you want. I talked about this last time. Go to library, then adults, then young adults, then institute, and you'll find New Testament student manual there. This is what Gerald Lund said. The title of the book in Greek is Apocalypsis, from which we get another common name, the Apocalypse. Apocalypsis is formed from two Greek words, apo, a preposition denoting separation or removal, and calypto, a verb meaning to cover, hide, or veil. Apoc apocalypsis, then, literally means removing of the veil or covering. Hence, its title in English, the book of Revelation, or the uncovering or unveiling. While many might find the title to be ironic, <laughs> arguing that few books are more hidden or veiled, it is an appropriate one, for it truly reveals many things. Elder Bruce R. McConkie, in response to the question, are we expected to understand the book of Revelation? Answered, certainly. Why else did the Lord reveal it? The common notion that it deals with beasts and plagues and mysterious symbolisms that cannot be understood is just not true. If we apply ourselves with full purpose of heart, we can catch the vision of what the ancient revelator recorded. Now, I have to admit, I am one of those who thought, yeah, the book of Revelation deals with beasts and plagues and mysterious symbolisms, because it does. But like the parables of Jesus, it gives us a chance, gives us a puzzle and a chance to see if we can figure it out. And there's something kind of fun about trying to figure something out. In the manual, it says to focus on Jesus. There's many different descriptions of the Savior. So on page 197 in the Come Follow Me manual, it says, ultimately, you don't have to understand every symbol in Revelation to understand its important themes, including its most prominent theme, Jesus Christ and his followers will triumph over the kingdoms of men and of Satan. So when we start out here, we get in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So we sometimes call him John the Revelator. And I love verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, 
Is it possible to read and not hear? Yeah, I think so. I think, have you ever just been lost in thought and you keep reading, but you're not getting anything? And he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. So that's, if you want to be blessed, you read it, you hear it, and then you keep it. So I wrote in my margin, learn, receive, obey. And then we get the big capital J, kind of it looks like, okay, now I'm starting. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. So often we have this eternal nature of Christ described, like in verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come. So the definition of truth we have from the Book of Mormon is truth is a knowledge of things as they are, as they were, as they are to come. And Jesus is one of those who is and was and will be. And Alpha and Omega is the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It reminds me a little bit of Amazon, because when you see the Amazon.com logo, it has an arrow underneath that goes from A to Z. And Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And Richard Draper, one of my Book of Revelation professors, said a better way to think of it is not he's A to Z, but he's A through Z. He's everything in between as well. And the Book of Revelation speaks in many different symbols of, of Christ when it speaks in these early chapters to the seven cities. It speaks of some of his attributes and compares him to different things. If you look at like verse 14, let's start at verse 13. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So we're going to get a lot of descriptions of the Savior here. One of the books that I've really enjoyed and an author I really respect is S. Michael Wilcox. Well, he has a book called Who Shall Be Able to Stand? Finding Personal Meaning in the Book of Revelation. This was published in 2003. Once again, S. Michael Wilcox, Who Shall Be Able to Stand? I really liked what he said about the voice as the sound of many waters in verse 15. Here's what Michael Wilcox said. John describes the voice of Christ as the sound of many waters. I frequently ask my classes when we reach this point to close their eyes and hear in their imagination the sound of many waters. I then ask them to tell me what they are listening to. I get three answers. Some hear the waves of the sea rolling to shore. Some hear a mountain stream rushing from high peaks and some hear the thunder of waterfalls cascading down the rocks. It doesn't matter which they hear, for all suit the purpose of poetic description. In each case, the sound is a powerful one, impossible to ignore. Yet when I ask them how they feel when they hear these sounds of water, they respond with words like peaceful, calming, soothing, healing. The voice of God is powerful, but instills solace. And I like that idea. It reminded me of how often, I know in my family, my wife does this, sometimes turns on the phone 
at night that's plugged in next to her bedstand, you know, with a white noise, which sounds like a waterfall. It sounds like the sound of many waters. Some people prefer an ocean sound where you hear the waves coming to the shore repeatedly, and that kind of indicates a consistency. For me, I like more of the, not the pulsating sound like waves, but I just like the white noise, like, like a waterfall. And his voice was like that, like the sound of many waters. It reminds me too in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, which is repeated in 1 Nephi chapter 20, it says, let's see, 1 Nephi chapter 20 verse 18, Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. And I, I remember a, uh, a hymn, I have peace like a river, I have peace like a river, the Tabernacle Choir sings it. And this is what I wrote in my little book, Isaiah for Airheads. If you had to choose a metaphor for peace, what would you choose? Isaiah made a wonderful choice. What's more peaceful than a gently flowing river? What's more constant than the waves of the sea washing onto the shore? Just reading this verse makes me want to go on vacation. I have a CD of river sounds, another of ocean sounds that I play to help me get to sleep at night. Why are they effective? Because they're peaceful. The music store has other more raucous CDs out there that would make falling asleep nearly impossible. So the idea of peace like a river and righteousness like the waves of the sea is in Isaiah. It's repeated again, yeah, describing the sound of the Son of Man's voice in Revelation 1.15. As we continue in Revelation chapter 2, we see this phrase. I underlined it every time I saw it. Verse 7, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Again in verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Verse 29, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We all have ears, and sometimes we don't hear. And I think this is talking about we have ears, but we're not hearing or listening or obeying or hearkening. I'm also reminded of in 3 Nephi when the Savior was about to appear to the Nephites and the Lamanites there, and they hear a voice coming out of heaven, but they can't understand it. And it says they did open their ears to hear it. And I don't know exactly what that means, but there was maybe a focus or a concentration that they didn't have before, where they really wanted to understand. And perhaps this is that same thing we need in understanding the book of Revelation. Well, he's talking to these seven churches now, and there's a really good chart, really helpful chart in the New Testament student manual, which you have on Library Adults, Young Adults Institute, and then you'll find New Testament student manual, which speaks to, which has a chart of the seven churches, a description of Jesus Christ in each of those seven churches, and praise and commendation to each of those churches, correction and counsel to each of those churches, and promises to those who overcome to each of those churches. A great chart. It's on page 531 and 532. And I just want to read the descriptions of Christ. So in, in Rev Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, to the church in Ephesus, 
He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And those candlesticks are the churches. Elder McConkie says, Candlesticks carry light, they do not create it. Their function is to make it available, not to bring it into being. So by using seven candlesticks to portray the seven churches to whom John is now to give counsel, the Lord is showing his congregations on earth are to carry his light to the world. Christ is the light of the world. What is the praise and commendation for Ephesus? I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and hast not fainted. Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now the correction in counsel is thou hast left thy first love. Wow. So, so often we're going to see this metaphor in these books of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And we are not to leave our first love, which is the bridegroom, which is the Savior. Okay, to Smyrna, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, the description of Christ, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The praise and commendation, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, thou art spiritually rich. To the church at Pergamos, Jesus is described as he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know my book of Revelation, Professor Richard Draper said that it's easier to hear Revelation than to try to see it or imagine it in your mind, because this sword was continually issuing forth, issuing forth out of the Savior's mouth, which is hard to see or imagine. But if the sword is the word of God and it's continually coming out of his mouth, oh, that makes sense. Then we can understand that. His words never cease. They continually come forth. To Pergamos, the praise and commendation was, I know thy works, that thou holdest fast my name, has not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. Okay, what's the, the church to Thyatira? And this is what we read, the verse, Revelation 2, 18 through 29, is the counsel to that church. The Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And what was the praise to the church of Thyatira? I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and patience, and thy works, and the last works, to be more than the first. To the church at Sardis, he that, the description of Christ is he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So it just describes, as it had mentioned before, that he had those uh, seven candlesticks, now seven spirits and seven stars, that I think Joseph Smith said the stars were servants. The praise was, Thou hast a few people who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What a great phrase. We'll walk with Jesus in white. That's in Revelation 3. To the church at Philadelphia, the description of Christ is, He that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The praise for them was, Thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Lastly, the church in Laodicea, Jesus is described as the Amen with a capital A, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And here there's no praise given. In fact, this is the one where the correction is, Thou art lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. But I read that because I thought just reading the descriptions of Christ is helpful. I think 
when we are in the Gospels and we, we read of the birth of Christ, the humble circumstances, Jesus once of humble birth, the song says, and we see the going around healing, but this teaching, preaching, and healing, but the Jesus we read about in the book of Revelation is powerful and impossible to miss and is described in these awesome and beautiful metaphors. And that is what our manual was telling us to do, to see him look for attributes of Christ as we read in the book of Revelation. If you don't understand all of the symbols, at least look at the attributes of Christ. And lastly, in Revelation 3.20, there's this, I think it's become a very famous painting. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This is a great thing to share with uh, children. You can find that painting of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And when my father showed me that as a child, because we had one in our house, he made sure that I noticed that there was no handle on the door. And the painting is actually on page 200 in the Come Follow Me manual, a Greg Olson, Greg K. Olson version of it. My dad made sure that I noticed there was no doorknob, no handle. And he asked me why, and as a kid, I couldn't figure it out. And he said, you have to open it from the inside. So there's a great illustration of agency there in Revelation 3.20. He stands at the door, he knocks, he wants to come in. But it says, if any man hear my voice and open the door. It's not, I bust down the door and force you to be good. It's, I stand at the door and knock. And he's asking us to please open the door to him. So hopefully that's a good way to at least start looking at the book of Revelation. We see a mighty Savior, the resurrected Christ, described in wonderful terms. And his, he is aware of what the churches are doing and gives them praise and some correction. And we should expect him to be that way with us. He knows what we're doing. He feels what we're feeling. He also invites us to come to higher ground. Well, join me next time, and we'll start in Revelation 6, I think, through 13. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.